following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah. That's right, you heard me correctly, book of Isaiah. I know we're normally in Ephesians, but uh, we are taking a little chance here to preach from Isaiah chapter 40. So go to Isaiah 40. We'll be breaking away from Ephesians for the next five weeks to do a, a mini-series in the, in the second half of Isaiah. Uh, this will be the second year now that we've taken a month at the end of the summer uh, and taken a minute together as elders and preached through a series of uh, different texts in one specific scripture or maybe a topic. Um, we do this for two reasons. First of all, it actually gives me a chance uh, to have four weeks in a row where I can work on some other pastoral things, some theological work, uh, some pastoral work that has to get done for the elders that sometimes I don't get to do in the midst of all the preaching and regular stuff that's going on. But then it also gives us a chance to hear from the other elders uh, as we work together in a section of scripture that we might not otherwise preach um, with, with, you know, for a long time perhaps. So if you remember last year, we were preaching through the book of Joshua, and we took five weeks to go through the book of Matthew and how he presents Jesus as the king. Um, so that's what we did last year, taking a look at that and understanding how we did that. Um, but this year, um, we are trying to take, while we're going through Ephesians, to go back to the second half of Isaiah and take five weeks and look through chapters 40 through the end of the book and try to understand these messages of hope. Um, now, I'm always thankful for the wisdom um, and comfort of having five elders to lead this church together. It's a great gift of God, um, especially in the times of difficulty and when the important tasks come to do these things together. And most times, I'm really happy with our decisions as we go forward as a group. I enjoy the work that we do together. I'm almost always glad to do whatever they ask of me. However, when we finally came down to deciding to preach through the second half of Isaiah, I'm just letting you know, they may have bitten off more than I can chew. So I'm going to do my best this week to try to drop us into an ancient book hundreds of years before Ephesians is ever written. Completely different time period, almost in a foreign land with Davidic kingship in action, where we have several different things going on that we don't experience where we've been working through Ephesians. Um, you know, we, we start to see these different, again, practices described in completely different literature, whereas we would look at Paul, he's epistling or writing a letter, uh, it's kind of propositional literature, line after line, everyone just pregnant with meaning and bringing all these things together. What we're looking at in Isaiah is poetry. We're looking at oracle. We're looking at prophecy. We're looking at narrative. And all together, this almost seems unfamiliar to us compared to what we've been doing in the book of Ephesians. Um, and what's more, uh, that I was tasked not only to do the intro of this book, but to do the intro of this book and summarize the first 39 chapters for you. So um, I am going to do my best so you can begin praying for me now. And in case you didn't know, I'm not necessarily an Isaiah scholar. Um, I may have known a little bit more than you did before I started studying, um, but this was not necessarily familiar territory for me. 
Needless to say, I feel like we are uh, trying to come together. I'm trying to give you an approach or a, kind of an introduction for someone who's famous, who is wise, who is old and majestic, who's, who his writings are known as the gospel of the Old Testament uh, in a way that is also just bringing uh, much struggle and strain to myself to understand. So I understand, and I want you to, 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 to think about it too, that Isaiah is not easy reading. If you go plop down there tomorrow and start reading through a couple chapters in a row, you are going to soon wonder where in the world you are at and what's going on and how is this connected with that and how's that connected with the next thing? And is he talking to me? Is he talking to these people? Is he talking to nations that aren't godly at all? What in the world is going on here in the book of Isaiah? Uh, I want you to know that's okay. I want you to remember that all of scripture is for your profit. It is good and it continues to work in us. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it does mean that it will be profitable for us. So part of what I'm trying to do today is to give you a little introduction so that you're not totally overwhelmed when you come to the book of Isaiah and try to say, okay, we can, as Christian readers, thousands of years later, read this as Christian scripture that helps us understand who God is and what he expects of us and what he has done to make those things come true. So again, I know that Isaiah is intimidating, but keep reading, keep thinking. It's worth it for you to keep uncovering these enormous gold mines of theological truths when we look at the book of Isaiah. What we're going to do to begin before we pray is just look at the first 11 verses. We're going to read it, we're going to pray, and we're going to go from there. So look at Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. This is God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her, war her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go, up, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to this passage, these prophecies, these ideas, these wonderful truths given to us by the prophet Isaiah, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful treasure, the wonderful message of grace and mercy, the redemption of God and his mighty hand for his people. Lord, may you receive all honor and glory today. We say together, you are holy. Lord, would your will be done here today as it is in heaven. We need your help and we ask for your grace today. 
Feed us with the word so that we might be filled and continue to have strength and nourishment to continue on as your people here. We look forward to the day when you will come again and you will unite all things in yourself in Christ Jesus. We love you and ask for your blessing on your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Isaiah is a vision of what is really going on from God's perspective. Now, obviously, it's Isaiah, and we understand that. But what's actually happening here is this is a word from the Lord through Isaiah for his people of what's really going on in the world. It's made up of several different visions and oracles and poems and narratives and prophecies, all meant to both warn and to comfort God's people. Isaiah proclaims judgment against sin, but also hope for God's people, solely based not on their merit, get this, but on his faithfulness and his own sovereign ability. Someday, by God's grace and patience, I would love to, again, if he permits, to preach the whole book of Isaiah, um, right from the beginning to the end. But for now, we're going to have to settle for a few highlights and a history of what leads us up to chapter 40. The unifying theme in the first 35 chapters is that of kingship. And specifically, when I mean kingship, I mean the one who reigns in Zion or Jerusalem. This is, of course, full of difficulties for us as modern readers. It kind of just seems like a collection of all these different poems and prophecies and oracles when we read it, but there's more to it than that. It isn't just a collection. It's not just a bunch of different things got pieced together, but it has one unified, regular message to the people. It's this almost a preoccupation with the king who is or reigns in Zion. At some points, this king looks like the Lord himself. You probably know Isaiah 6, this incredible vision of God and his glory on his throne where his glory fills the temple out. So sometimes when he's writing, the Lord himself is the king. And then other times, of course, we have different regular current physical kings who sit on the throne of David who are ruling over Judah. That's throughout the book. We see that in a couple different kings. And yet there's another time here that we will see in other uh, different inklings of it that Isaiah seems to show a completely different person. This comes to us when we think about Christmas usually in Isaiah 9. He talks about the one who comes, of course, who is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now, all of these ideas, the Lord is king, the the physical king, son of David, and then even this one coming that we're not sure who it is, all continue to push us to understand that we need that king to come. But it also shows us that the physical kings in the line of David right now don't seem to live up to what they're supposed to be doing. They just don't seem to have it. These kings are often wicked, and even the good ones die. They're not ultimate. They eventually go the way of the world. They haven't lived up to the Davidic promises, and instead, we see a lot of unfaithfulness that eventually, throughout their time, brings judgment of God on them. In these first 35 chapters, there seems to be a strange paradox, though, both of God's judgment against sinful Judah and his promise to bring the everlasting king to the throne for the glory of of God and the good of his people. The prophet Isaiah, in his time period, ministered during the time of five different kings. In the book here, you're going to see at least four that are mentioned, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
Now, if you're interested in this at all and you want to see a, a pretty good telling of the story, just mark Second uh, Chronicles 26 through 32. Go read those chapters and it will help you understand the time period that Isaiah is working in. At Second Chronicles 26 through chapter 20, 32. That will give you a helpful overview of what's happening during Isaiah's ministry. Now, during this time, already the northern tribes that we often are called Israel have separated. There's been a split from the southern tribes. Um, those southern tribes are known as Judah. And this is where Isaiah works. This is where he prophesies. And the biggest threat during this time is the powerhouse of the nation of Assyria. Not Syria, Assyria. Israel in the north cannot withstand this enemy, and eventually they are taken into captivity. They become exiles of Assyria, while Judah, of course, holds out, trying desperately to survive as this small, independent nation that has the Davidic promises. Now, eventually, in Ahaz's day, um, nations opposed to Assyria strengthen themselves and look to gain more and more resources and territory. We see, as, a, as, the, as the chronicler says, that both the Edomites and the Philistines invade Judah, defeat some of their cities, settle in them, and then take their resources for their own use. Now, of course, this is an intolerable situation for a people who are to maintain the line of David, who are supposed to have this racial purity by God's command. Ahaz is a king of Judah. He should trust the Lord, of course, to expel the people and to work on his behalf and do all the things that he has promised to do for the kings of God, for his people. It's apparent, though, almost immediately that this will not work out for him. What he does instead is trust alliances and others, and he's more and more fearful of those that are around him. Ahaz, king of Judah, eventually goes to the king of Assyria for help. And of course, he makes a treaty with him. He pays him tribute. He basically says, okay, here's some money. Here's some stuff. Please don't destroy us and kind of help us out as much as you can. Of course, we know as believers that that will always end in futility. Trusting in the kings of the world to do the job that only God can do. Ultimate security. Second Chronicles 28, 20 through 21 says this. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. Ahaz dies and his son takes over, Hezekiah. Now I know like, we throw that name around a lot, like that's a book of the Bible and laugh. It's actually a real king. He's a good one too. Hezekiah is a real king who, compared to many of his fathers, is a wonderful king who obeys oftentimes. Compared to many of them, he's very good, obeying the law and seeking God in many of his ways. But here, he inherits the mess that his father Ahaz has given himself into. At this point, the king of Assyria is pushing southward to overtake, like, everyone, all these different states and provinces. But Egypt and others look to kind of put together a concerted rebellion. They don't want to give up their freedom. They don't want to have to succumb to the king of Assyria. Also, there's another one, Babylon. They also wish to stay free. And it's in this time that Merodach Baladan sends an envoy to Hezekiah, presumably for some sort of alliance against this huge common enemy, Assyria. Now, through all of this, Isaiah is giving the king's promises that God will be faithful. 
And this means that Hezekiah should trust God. He knows the truth. He has the word of God. He knows that has the promises that say that all things will turn out right for those who trust the Lord. None of these earthly protectors are supposed to be the ones that he trusts. But as history often does, there's a repetition of what's happened before. Hezekiah does not put all his security eggs in one basket. He should, but he doesn't. Instead, he hedges his bets by joining some of sort of alliance with Egypt in some way. We're not sure of all the details. And as a new king of Assyria comes on the scene, Sennacherib, he is ready to turn his attention to those nations who needed, that he wanted to have completely in his dominion. And he wanted to make these his Assyrian provinces. So Egypt proves that they can't do it. They fail. They're not the big, strong nation that they're supposed to be. Egypt proves to be a weak ally that does more harm than good. And thus Judah finally is confronted by this superpower, Assyria, head on. And here we are. They've already made the mistake of diversifying their security between God and Egypt, these other peoples. And later on, the Assyrians will mock Judah. If you remember this, they will mock Judah for likening Egypt kind of to a broken reed that if you put any sort of weight on it, it will snap and the broken part will pierce you. Egypt is going to do you more harm than they are going to do you any good whatsoever. So now the stage is set for the king of Assyria to confront Judah. When we get to chapter 36 in Isaiah, we've been reading along only poetry, oracle, prophecy, but now Isaiah brings us into real time, and he even does it by telling us the story. He goes to narrative, something he hasn't done so far in his prophecy. As we read chapter 36, we see Assyria offering Judah either peaceful exile, like you can come with us and everything's fine, we'll feed you, everything's going to be okay, you'll just have to become our nation, you can do that, or prepare for violent destruction. Like the, the, the terms that they use are grotesque and wicked and evil, how they are going to treat this nation. Chapters 36 and 37 show Hezekiah, the Davidic king, who was unfaithful, making alliances with people who had no business doing this, now pleading with God, truly repenting of what he did and asking God in faith for his salvation. This, of course, was the proper posture all along. This is where he should have been at the beginning, not making alliances with all these different physical kings around him. He should have done this from the beginning. If you remember, this event ends in one of the most incredible victories ever recorded. I mean, it's truly remarkable. For the Lord sends his angel, the angel of the Lord, to strike down, get this number, 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp. I mean, an incredible victory. God wins. I mean, it's, it shows forth that he's proclaimed as the God who saves his people, the God who hears, even to the point that you get this narration of what happens eventually to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and he goes back and he is worshiping in the house of his idolatrous God, and his two sons come and murder him. I mean, it's definitive. This God wins. He's the God who saves. There is hope in this God. This brings us to Isaiah 38 and 39. Chronologically, the story probably happened in reverse. 
Uh, it's probably that this last story in 38 9, and 39 happened before the one that we just talked about. But it's told in this way for the sake of the coming history for Judah. And more importantly, the theological message that God is trying to get across to his people. Now, it would be great if we got to this point and we're like, great, chapter 37, he obeyed. God wins. He destroys all his enemies. It must be that Hezekiah is the one that he prophesied about, that Isaiah talked about, that he's the one that's going to come and do what's right and live before the king and to the people as a proper king. That would have been awesome. But Hezekiah was not the promised Messiah. We already know the truth about who he is. And chapters 38 and 39 bring it up again in living color and help us understand the problem with Hezekiah. Chapter 38 opens with a devastating reality. Hezekiah is only human. Hezekiah gets sick and is told by God through Isaiah that he won't recover, but rather that he will die. Now, upon hearing this, you can imagine what he's thinking. Upon hearing this, Hezekiah pleads with God to be merciful to him, that God remember his obedience and miraculously, I mean, I thought the word of the Lord had already come, but miraculously, he listens to Hezekiah and he grants him 15 more years of life. But that's not the end of the story. This event should have filled Hezekiah with greater faith in Yahweh. He was the rescuer, the mighty one, the one who listened and responded to the cries of his people for salvation. If you read chapter 38, you'll even see that God gave him a supernatural sign that no one else could do. He made the shadow move 10 steps back on the sundial. Absolutely amazing. What earthly help could one possibly need if God, this God, was on your side? Enter chapter 39. Chapter 39 begins with Merodach Baladan, king of Babylon, sending an envoy to potentially work out an alliance against Assyria with Judah. And Hezekiah when he should kindly host the envoy and then send them on their way, instead does something totally different, something that may seem benign to us. But instead, he shows something different. Not that he just kindly like, take them in and go their way. Instead, he gives them a huge signal. He shows them all that he had to offer for their potential union as nations against Assyria as if he had to prove that Judah was worth allying with. And so what he does is he takes them on a tour. He shows them his palace. He shows them all the riches. He shows them all the resources. He shows them all of his horses and his people and his servants and anything that's of value, he shows it to this envoy from Babylon. Let me read Isaiah 39.2. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, again, at first glance, you and I might think this is just some sort of prideful tour that he is giving. Hey, why don't you come over to my crib and see all my stuff? Isn't it awesome? Like we just think he's proud. You should get over yourself. But again, that's not what's going on here. He is making a giant signal to say, hey, if you were to join with us in alliance, we could be a lot better off because I have a lot to offer to you. Isaiah comes on the scene, though, and he finds out what's happened. 
He knows the unfaithfulness of Hezekiah and gives him God's word that everything that Hezekiah had shown to this this envoy from Babylon would be taken away. All of it. All of it would be taken away. But even more devastating than that, than losing all your resources and riches was the fact that the Davidic kingdom was now threatened. Now, let me explain what I mean. Listen to Isaiah 39, 6 and 7. This is Isaiah speaking to Hezekiah about what will happen. Verse 6, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, important, he's making this point here, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah had heard bad news before, right? Remember the previous chapter right before this? And his response, if you remember, is weeping and praying and crying out for mercy. Another bad thing happens. He gets terrible news. But this time, listen to what Hezekiah says in verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Man, that is awful. It's selfish. It's so cowardly, ungrateful, unfaithful, etc. I mean, it's this little phrase and thought that tell us what Hezekiah is actually most concerned about. Himself. It kind of tells us exactly what he was thinking about earlier on when the struggles came, himself. And this is a real problem. Remember who we are talking about. This is really important. A king in the line of David. Upon hearing that he was going to die in chapter 38, he cries, no, Lord, please, I don't want to die. But then when the word comes that his sons, the future kings of Israel in the Davidic line, that these sons will be exiled and made into eunuchs in Babylon, he thinks to himself, at least it won't happen to me. Man, selfish, not concerned whatsoever about the promises of God to his people. Instead of taking the promises and the commands and the requirements the Lord surrounded this everlasting kingdom in the Davidic line seriously, he thought only of himself. That's not the king that I want on the throne. That's not the king that Isaiah had talked about for the last 35 chapters in his prophecy. It's in the midst of this terrible failure of yet another Davidic king that Isaiah brings us to the brink of destruction of a nation, of his people. And he tells us that this time it will end in the exile of God's people at Babylon, not just a few people within the nation. Like they will go to Babylon. And he was right. He told the truth. Within the next 100 years or so, Judah is carried off to Babylon in captivity. Judgment comes. Hezekiah's failure and his failures of all the Davidic kings will result in the judgment of God's people. Now, Isaiah never went into captivity. And so what's going on here is still in the future. He is saying this will happen. Exile is inevitable. The judgment of God will come for what you have done. He would be long gone, of course, Isaiah would by the time Judah was exiled. However, he was a prophet of God. And God gives him a word, not only for these people, but for us. 
He speaks both of judgment and of hope. He is still their God. With this reality looming, the promise of disaster, exile for the nation, Isaiah brings a message of comfort and consolation for the people of God. I mean, the first 35 chapters have called his people, specifically the kings of Judah, to live properly in the midst of extreme pressure and difficulty that is coming from every side to them. It's a call to trust and obey God even when things are difficult and you must choose to obey and trust God alone. It's a call to trust him when all looks hopeless and the stresses of life seem unbearable. It's a call to make a decision to trust God and not man. But by the end of chapter 39, his people have chosen. His people have chosen not to trust him, but rather they've chosen God plus the idolatry of some sort of political security around them. That somehow if they made alliances with others, that would make sure that they were safe. Get this, they were actually thinking that if they trusted the nations around them, that could keep the Davidic line and promises afloat rather than trusting the one who made the promises to them. The call to trust God and obey him had been rejected. And now judgment looms as sure destiny of these wicked people. And at this point, all right, as readers, we come to this point and we're asking, or we should be asking ourselves an important question. Does the Babylonian exile mean the end of the Lord's people? I mean, it's finally come to this. He's exiling his people, sending them this way into captivity for judgment and destruction. And if so, does this mean that Judah has outsinned God's ability to keep his promises? They've done just one too many sins. God was sick and tired of it, and he's done with his nation. His promises to redeem his people, over. Either the people are done for, or they aren't. Which will it be? At this juncture, at the end of chapter 39, there's a big sign called exile is here. Judgment of God is coming, and it will certainly happen. At this juncture, the promises have been forfeited, but they are not destroyed. They are not completely overridden because of their wickedness. Judgment does come to his people, but he will not utterly destroy them. There is still a seed. There is still a people. There is still those that have represented the promises of God to his people. There are still promises that he will not break. Isaiah 40 through 55 answers that question with the familiar yet astounding promise and message. I am God. I am your redeemer. I am faithful to fulfill all my promises and graciously redeem you as my righteous people. So in chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah will give us principles of God's sovereign rule and power over creation, despite unfulfilled promises as they can see it. He shows us that this God will do something absolutely amazing that they never saw coming. He will redeem his people. He will forgive them. He will liberate them, both physically from exile by the hand of Cyrus, and more importantly, spiritually, by the life and work that we know as the Lord's anointed suffering servant. All of this will lead, of course, then by the end, chapter 55, to the invitation for everyone who thirsts, both his people 
and all the nations to come to him for drink. So it's this. This is the background. Like, yeah, you ready for this? Now we got a long way to go. Um, No, this is the background for getting us into these next four times together. Here in chapter 40, then, we have two major truths that are being displayed. First, God is the sole ruler of the universe. He shows this in verse 12 through 26. But then he also says that God can be trusted by his people. He does this at the beginning in verses 1 through 11, and then also in 27 through 31. Now, again, as you've probably realized, I'm not going to unpack every passage in this detail. Instead, I wanted to bring us to this point so we could feel the devastation, what has happened because of the judgment that we so rightly deserve. We are wicked, unfaithful people who will receive judgment at the hand of the Lord. We are devastated knowing that we have earned the wrath of God cowering before an almighty God, all powerful to destroy and pull his wrath and rain it down on those who have betrayed him. To those people, let me read verse one. Comfort. Comfort says, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now remember, this is a word of prophecy, that this word comes to describe a time the judgment of God will come to an end after the exile is over. Knowing where they are going, God speaks comfort to his people. Yes, judgment is sure, He cannot clear the guilty. We know this from Exodus. But his promises will not fail. He can be trusted to fill all that he said he will do. Verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Whoa! The exile is real. Judgment against sin is real. But he will make a way. He is true to who he said he was. He is a gracious, loving, saving God. He will reveal the glory of the Lord for all to see. Verse 6, a voice voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Who is to be trusted? Mankind? Those that are grass compared to this God? Not even an army is needed to kill grass, if you you know. Here it says the breath of God. Kind of just withers the grass, makes it go away. The Lord and his word stand forever. Go on up, verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Look, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
This is the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God, the one who is the good shepherd. He is mighty, even mightier than the wickedness of his people. And he will come forth with a mighty arm to rule his people. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Like, really, guys? You thought it was good to put your trust in other people? Mankind that's like grass? Can you mark off the oceans with your hands? Can you just hold it inside the cup of your hand? Can you weigh mountains in your balance? Can you do that? Or maybe, can you tell me, who, who taught God anything? It's very Job-esque here, right? He's like, how about justice or knowledge or understanding? Did you teach God that kind of stuff? Obviously, the answer is no. This God is unlike any other. God is God, and all creation, the nations, are like a drop in the bucket or like a grain of dust. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Go ahead and give me your analogy of who this God is. What, what do you think about him? Or what likeness do you compare him with? Verse 19, an idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Like, do you really think he is like these gods? One that can be fashioned by someone you can go down and pay a few bucks to do your job to make this idol look like the thing that you want it to be? That's your God? Is that really who you think this God is? That's made of wood or stone or metal or gold or silver? Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. He's not even there. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is like the one who is over all of the earth looks down on creation as if they were grasshoppers. The powerful princes of Assyria or Babylon or Egypt for that matter are nothing compared to this God. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatest of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. There is no one like this God. He is the God of the universe. No one's like him. He is the undisputed sole ruler of the universe and no one can rival this God. 
Verse 27, turns back to his people. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He is, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He turns to his people, O Jacob, O Israel, the Lord is your everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will renew your strength because his might is great. It is this God who punishes his people in exile. It's this God who the people can trust despite the depths of their wickedness. What really happens here in the next 15 chapters or so is the telling of the gospel. It's the grace that no one, no one deserves. Even his people who have been given everything, the law, the prophets, all the people who have this relationship with God, even them, the gospel comes to them of mercy that's only found in God's work of salvation. A story of grace so sweet that an all-powerful father would give his only son to make a way for us to be his people. The content of these next few chapters is, is, is sweet, sweet news for us. The weary, dying, devastated soul because of our sin. It is grace and mercy and hope for the weary, sin-stained rebels whose only hope is the mercy of a loving father who's the only one who can intervene. Now, the guys, the, the rest of the elders will come and preach more from the next couple sections. But I want us to get to this point and realize that this is not only a prophecy for the peoples of Judah. It certainly is. This is a message for us. We, we know it, actually. We already know this is true. We've already experienced this in some way, understanding as people of God, that what we deserve, every part of us is headed for judgment. The wrath of God poured out against us because all of us have sinned against him. All of us have rebelled against his rule. All of us hate his authority. All of us are like sheep who have gone astray. This message is for us. Despite our rebellion, despite our unbelief, Despite our idolatry and despite our spiritual adultery from this God, he, in Jesus Christ, has worked to redeem his people. It's the gospel. It's the good news that you and me who deserve nothing but judgment can, because of Jesus Christ's righteousness and his substitutionary atonement, his work on the cross, we can know fellowship with the Father and be forgiven and redeemed and liberated from our sin. This is the gospel. It's a story of unfathomable grace, a story that holds up his justice and he is still who he says he always was. And yet at the same time, he makes a way for sinners to be called righteous and to enjoy him forever. Friend, if, if you're here today and you don't know what I'm talking about, when, when, when if you think gospel is a type of music, let me just talk to you about what the gospel is, the good news of Jesus Christ. We talk about gospel, there's a, just a summary of it. There's four parts, basically. 
God is holy and righteous and created all men and requires us to live righteously before him. The problem is that mankind rebelled against God. All have sinned against him. I can tell you right now, every single person here has chosen to rebel against this God. But there's good news. In his grace and mercy, he made a way for him to be just and punish sin because your sin had to be dealt with. But he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, the perfect second Adam, to live and die and become our payment. That he took the wrath of God that you and I deserved. The last part is that we must trust him as the only wise king. That Jesus Christ is the only way. That trusting him as God and God alone, as the king of our life, is the only way to have salvation in him. This is the gospel. And you are called this morning. If you do not know this God, repent of your sin. Trust him alone. Him alone, Jesus Christ, who has given his life for us. And you may have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Either you will pay for your sin on your own, or Christ alone will pray for your sin. Brothers and sisters, may I talk to you for a moment. Turn your eyes to the God of all grace. To the God that did not end Isaiah at chapter 39 but give us the sweet servant songs that are coming that shows Jesus Christ, the one afflicted for us, that shows us the grace that he will come through in the end as serious victor, savior, and king. This is the God who is ours. Our call is to trust this God, to hope in him alone, and to bring him glory as we participate in his grand plan of salvation and glory. Let us live, therefore, in light of the truths of God's grace today. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the grace that you have bestowed on us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that although each one of us are headed for and deserve the wrath of God and judgment, you have made a way through Jesus Christ for men to know God, to have fellowship and love. I pray, Lord, that we not take this lightly, but we would turn from our sin, from our slavery to this stupidity called autonomy, independence, doing what we want to do. And Lord, let us bow to you, repenting of our sins and loving you only as our king. I pray that you would increase faith in the saints. I pray that you would build up the church, that, Lord, you would use the sermon to equip us, helping us know the grace of our God, and all that he does, despite our unfaithfulness, despite our wickedness, Lord, you have made a way in Jesus Christ of forgiveness and liberation from these debts. You have freed us to live in joy in you. We thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.